Hey, Stefano. Um, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hey, Utkarsh. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. I'm super excited about this conversation. So, uh, been a while. Uh, you've been to McKinsey after INSEAD, and uh, there was, I believe, BBP, BHP in between. And now you're in the crypto space uh, leading Long Hash VC. Walk me through you know, how you entered Web3. Yeah, no, it's it's quite a circuitous uh, uh, journey that I've taken. Um, yeah, I started my career at, at BHP where I was doing uh, sales and trading of uh, various commodities. Um, I, I went to INSEAD, which is where we met, um, and I, I was part of the, I guess, majority of people that ended up in consulting, and in my case, I ended up at, at McKinsey. Um, and I was doing a lot of consulting uh, around technology and around transformation, so I, I was definitely you know, helping a lot of clients around thinking, you know, around disruption and around how how to stay ahead of the curve. Um, I ended up in Web3, I guess, partly because I, I, you know, I just came across crypto, I think as early as 2015 or so, I bought a little bit of ETH, but, you know, at the time it was very hard. So I kind of bought it and, and forgot about it. Um, and eventually I came back to it around 2020 when I heard about DeFi uh, and I started to hear about, um, you know, this new parallel financial system being built on the blockchain. And I started to dive into it. Um, you know, I started to play around with it as well. I set up a, a MetaMask wallet. I started to put in a little bit of money, not really thinking that I would make any money, but just as a way to, to learn. Um, and uh, I just went into the rabbit hole. I started to understand what people were solving for and realizing that, you know, Web3 was the real technology transformation that was worth uh, paying attention to and being part of. And um, and so through that, I think, uh, you know, after a couple of months of, of just, you know, on my own time doing the research, using some of the products, uh, I made the decision to to quit McKinsey, um, actually with, with nothing, uh, with, with no job or anything, uh, but just with a very strong conviction about the Web3 space. Um, and through the McKinsey network, um, I found Long Hash Ventures. Uh, the two founding partners are also McKinsey alumni. And I initially came in, I did a little bit of consulting for them. Uh, they were looking for somebody who could come in and, and help some of the portfolio companies uh, with their pitches to investors, right? And this was kind of the basic McKinsey toolkit around, you know, how to tell a very compelling story about a problem you're solving and how you're solving that problem. And, and that's how I started to really get involved with, with Long Hash Ventures and with Web3. And it was one of those things that, you know, the deeper I got into it, the more I enjoyed it, uh, the, the, which in the end made me go deeper into, into things with Long Hash Ventures. And then eventually after a few months, um, you know, they, they, they offered me to, to join them full time. And so that was around uh, early 2021. And uh, here I am today. Uh, it's been around 18 months with the firm. Um, so I'm the head of platform and as head of platform, I lead uh, the accelerator uh, programs and partnerships, uh, which is one part of the business. And then the other part is, is our two VC funds. Awesome. What is Long Hash Venture Capital's thesis and how did you arrive at it? So the overarching thesis is that we have a very strong belief in a multi-chain future. And 
I would say that thesis then drives, uh, you know, the investments that we make uh, and then the types of partners uh, that we choose to partner with to run our accelerator programs. Um, how we arrived at that was that very early on, uh, when we were founded around five years ago, um, we had the opportunity to invest in uh, Polkadot, which is one of the so-called layer zeros in, in the blockchain space. And Polkadot was, was already building to solve for a multi-chain future by creating a, a layer underneath various blockchains to be able to connect them and to let them speak to each other. And, um, you know, I think as part of uh, learning about what Polkadot was building, as part of investing into the Polkadot ecosystem, and also as part of running their first global accelerator back in, in uh, 2019, um, you know, we we started to develop that very strong belief that, you know, the future was not going to be won by only one chain or one ecosystem, but rather by, you know, it, it'll be, it, it will be a future of multiple chains solving for multiple uh, problems, and, uh, and they will be all connected to each other in one way or another. And I think we're starting to see that um, thesis play out now because I think in the last 12 to 18 months, you know, first of all, we're seeing the rise of the alternative L1. So where around 2020, you had a lot of the early DeFi uh, activity happening on Ethereum. And in 2021, you started to see a lot of the shift to alt ones uh, such as, um, you know, Solana or Avalanche, for example. Um, and then at the same time, in parallel, looking at other chains that are looking to uh, solve some of Ethereum's scalability issues, um, you know, uh, such as, you know, Polygon and some of the optimistic rollup and zero knowledge uh, solutions. Um, the other thing we're also seeing is the rise of other ecosystems. So we saw Polkadot finally launching their parachains at the end of last year. Uh, we're seeing a lot of strong activity in the Cosmos ecosystem. Um, we're also seeing the rise of uh, app chains where effectively those who are building uh, decentralized applications are choosing not to necessarily deploy on an existing chain that, um, you know, where maybe the features of that change doesn't fully fit to what they they need, but actually launching their own chains and, and, and setting up in a way that has the same, you know, all the features that are needed. And at the same time, we're also seeing the rise of, um, uh, you know, of, uh, of some of the protocols that are going to connect these chains. And one of them uh, is Axelar, and we are partnering with them to launch their first global accelerator program um, in, in a couple of weeks. Um, and so they're basically solving for being able to connect all these different chains, you know, built on different uh, ecosystems, you know, with different languages, but being able to actually connect the applications, the users, uh, and the funds across each other. Awesome. What's exciting you most about the Web3 chain? I think what's really exciting is that if you look across a lot of uh, the applications that we believe have found or are in the process of finding product market fit, there is a significant amount of disruption um, to a lot of traditional business models. And what is particularly exciting to me is that um, the disruption or the, the, the implications of that disruption is that there is more power and value being distributed to the users rather than to uh, middlemen that, that have existed you know, for decades, if not centuries. Um, so the first example is, um, you know, if you look at the, 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 the financial services industry, um, you know, DeFi started as I would say, probably the first 
set of use cases that found product market fit um, and where uh, one of the first uh, applications of, of, uh, of these concepts were around decentralized exchanges where instead of using an, an order book system that you know traditional exchanges like like Nasdaq or, or the NYSE have used in the past where you need very large market makers you know to come in and provide that liquidity you know now with these decentralized uh, versions of this um, you know, it actually allows anybody to be a, a market maker or a liquidity provider and to be able to, um, you know, use their um, their assets, say, for example, like a token um, in a very capital efficient way. Um, and, and that's sort of the first area that we're seeing being significantly disrupted. Um, but there's actually a lot of areas where, where we're starting to see this. Um, another area uh, that we're seeing is around NFTs. And I think a lot of people think like, okay, NFTs are just, you know, these, these funny uh, JPEG doodles that that cost you know crazy amounts of money, um, but we're starting to see quite a few applications where NFTs can help to also disrupt uh, some of these existing business models. And a great example of this is in music NFTs, where you know there's these new um, business models created using NFT technology, where you are disrupting the middlemen, which were historically you know the, the record labels that were taking a big chunk of the pie, and redistributing that value towards artists and fans. Um, and so these are just a couple of examples, but I think that um, you know, we, we're starting to see a lot more uh, innovation in, in business models, thanks to Web3 technologies that, um, that are creating like significant disruption in very traditional industries. Yeah, the value creation and value capture, uh, both aspects are uh, changed by Web3. Do you mind giving us an example of uh, interesting business models that you see? Yeah, so I think um, I think a great example that I like to think, and I, I, I touched a little bit on earlier, is um, is when it comes to uh, when it comes to things like DeFi, and the the, the beauty about uh, some of these uh, applications are that not only does it enable you know anybody, regardless of you know how many tokens they might have. Uh, or how few tokens they have to participate in, um, in in capital markets, but it's also very capital efficient. So I'll give you an example. Um, so let's say that in the traditional world, you know, you are, you know, you you decide to buy some some stocks, right? You buy Apple stocks, or or you buy Tesla shares, and you know, you have strong conviction that that they're going to keep on innovating and the price will go up. Now, traditionally, you know, if you're an individual, you you kind of buy the shares and they just sit in your um, you know, in your in your trading account, your brokerage account, and, and that's kind of the end of it. And the only appreciation comes from the potential upside that you get on the on the share price. Now, if you look at the way that uh, this actually works in the Web three world, um, so let's say that you are a holder of Ethereum tokens, right? So you hold some Ethereum tokens, and you know you hold them because you have a strong conviction that you know uh, the value will go up over time. Now, in addition to that capital appreciation of the token. There's other things you can do with that token to uh, generate value for you as an investor, regardless of how many tokens you have. You can have only one Ethereum, you can have 100, you can have 1,000. It doesn't really matter because everything is permissionable, uh, permissionless and composable. And so what I mean by that is you can take those tokens and you can go to a platform like, say, Balancer, which is a, a decentralized uh, exchange and an automated market maker. And what you can do is, let's say you have one Ethereum token, or, or, or let's say, maybe to make it a bit easier, let's say you have 10. So you take those 10 Ethereum tokens, you deposit it into Balancer, into one of their liquidity pools, so that other people can actually 
uh, conductor traits using your tokens as liquidity, and you start to earn a fee uh, based on that trading activity. So not only are you now capturing the upside from Ethereum going up, but you're also capturing you know, additional value from your, your assets being used in a, in a liquidity pool for trading. Now, one interesting thing that, that Balancer developed with yet another uh, uh, product called Aave is, um, is something where when you deposit your tokens into that liquidity pool, um, you know, most of the times, you know, only a, a relatively short, a re relatively small percentage of the liquidity pool is actually used on a daily basis for trading. And so what happens is that a lot of that liquidity is sitting there idle. And one of the things that they did with, with this other platform called Aave, which is a, a borrowing lending platform, is actually take some of that liquidity and provide it as, um, as, as, as a lending pool uh, on Aave, which is this other platform. So it's, it's almost as if, like, imagine if the NASDAQ today had a trading pair, which is, you know, USD and Tesla stock. And then in addition to that, they take, you know, some of those assets in that pool and give it to a bank, let, let's say, I don't know, Bank of America. And enable Bank of America to actually lend those assets, and then, of course, you know, generate an interest, and then pass it back down to the asset uh, owner, you know, which is the individual. And so it becomes a very capital efficient way for you to own assets and to be able to put those assets to work that just doesn't exist in the traditional uh, financial system. Uh, love the explanation. Um, what do most people get wrong about Web three? So I think one of the biggest um, misconceptions, I would say, um, is that a lot of people feel like, oh, it's, um, you know, it, it's just a speculation and it's a scam and it's just tokens with zero value. And, you know, I was around, I mean, I was a teenager when we had the dot-com boom and the subsequent bust. And I think similar to that time, you know, of course, there are people that are going to be opportunistic and they're going to try to get in and make a quick buck. Um, and of course, you are going to see hundreds, probably thousands of, you know, companies being set up and 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 try to, you know, do things in a Web3 way, right? Um, you know, only to eventually crash and, and, and to just leave a few winners, uh, you know, in the end. Um, so, so I think a lot of people have this misconception that, that you know, it's all a scam. It's a get rich quick scheme and, and there's nothing more to it. Um, but I think what a lot of people don't understand is how the technology around, you know, smart contracts, uh, tokens, uh, non-fungible tokens, and one thing that, you know, has been talking, has been, people have been talking a lot, a lot about in the last probably six to nine months, which is soulbound tokens. All these different technologies um, actually allow people um to do things in, in, in very different ways. So I talked a little bit around, you know, the permissionless and composability, um, which is, you know, I would say two of the biggest mantras of Web3 around, you know, anybody being able to access these products, anybody being able to interact with these products, build on top of these products, right? Um, but, but a lot of the other, you know, new business models that it enables that just the, the, the non-Web3 technologies just, just don't actually enable you to do that, right? And even beyond business models, I think that there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of much wider implications for even for society, right? And 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 for people uh, that the Web three enables. And one example I, I love to share is is around the future of work. 
And a lot of times when people think about the future of work, people are thinking, oh, you know, we're talking about maybe the, you know, the gig economy, or we're talking about maybe, you know, a hybrid model where you're, you're working from home two days a week and you're working in the office three days a week. And my view is that that's, that's a bit of the short-term future of work, but the, the real future of work is actually going to be enabled by, um, by Web3 technology and by things like DAOs, which are decentralized autonomous organizations. And um, the example I like to give is that the way that we've been working for the past 100 or 200 years is that you know, we, we all um, you know, develop some knowledge, develop a skill based on our education, uh, based on our upbringing, et cetera. And we take that knowledge and skill to one organization. And we sign a contract where we say, look, I'm going to provide you with this knowledge or skill, and you're going to reward me every month with a certain amount of money. And we basically do that continuously until I feel like I want to take my skills and knowledge to another place. And, and I rinse and repeat, right? And generally, and, and this has been my experience, is that every time I sign a contract with an organization, there's usually a clause that says, you're not allowed to work you know, for money anywhere else, right? So it's actually restricting me as a, as a worker, as an employee, from, from monetizing my skills further. Now, in the world of DAOs, this is completely different. The way that it generally works is that, you know, you provide a skill or a knowledge, right, to a DAO, uh, so a decentralized autonomous organization, which could be centered around, you know, a DeFi product, it could be centered around maybe an investment thesis, it could be centered around, you know, a particular interest around maybe like, I don't know, uh, art or, or music or whatever that may be, and, and the DAO will then reward you for the service. But your contribution to the DAO doesn't preclude you from contributing to other DAOs and, and, and being rewarded for that. And I met someone who, who started doing this. So uh, he's based in Florida and he, he just had a, you know, a kind of an IT administrator role in a, in a, in a small or, or medium-sized business in, in Florida. And then he started to get deep into Web3. And um, he, um, he, was, uh, he was quite good at analytics. And he started to produce a, um, a a weekly report for one of these DeFi DeFi products on a usage, right? And just to say, oh, you know, people are using this product the most and this feature the most, and uh, and you know, these are some of the trends we're seeing. And he just started to do it for free, and the DAO found it very valuable and started to actually uh, reward him for for this. So every month they would reward him, you know, a certain amount of tokens, probably worth maybe a couple thousand dollars. Um, for for writing this kind of weekly analytical reports. And then he realized that actually he could actually take that uh, approach and do it for other protocols. And, you know, the, the people in the first hour are not going to tell him not to. Um, and suddenly he was able to monetize his skills across various different um, companies, if you will, right? And while I don't think that DAOs or that, that every organization today will become a DAO in the future. I mean, for example, manufacturing, it would be impossible to run as a DAO. But I do think that that we are going to see increasing, increasingly new types of businesses, especially Web3 native businesses, organized as a DAO and enabling people to, you know, contribute to multiple DAOs and be rewarded for it and really maximize how much you can actually monetize your skills. Hypothetically, just hypothetically, do you see long cash ventures become a DAO? Potentially, potentially. Um, it's it's a bit challenging uh, given our, our our the way that we're set up, but um, I think um, you know uh, you've definitely seen um, 
uh, you know, uh, other, uh, you know, investment, uh, let's say, groups uh, become a, a what's called a venture DAO. Um, I think there's definitely a lot of um, uh, uh, challenges to 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 solve, right? Because what, what I would say one of the biggest challenges in, in DAOs is how do you measure uh, members' contributions, right? Um, and I don't think anybody has figured that out. I think for us, um, you know, we, we haven't thought too much into it. So I, I don't think it's really in the plan right now. But, um, you know, as I said, I think, you know, the, the future holds that uh, a lot of new businesses will um, will, uh, will 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 potentially become or organize around the DAO. Yeah, I spoke to Adam Jackson, who runs this company called Brain Trust. And that was very much like your Florida friend. It gives the opportunity for anyone with a skill, uh, a high value skill to join their DAO, join their network and sort of monetize them on their terms. Because let's face it, our relationship with work really changed in the last two years, mm -hmm. even more dramatically than before. Um, but yeah, but I just want to belabor this a bit more. What specifically about DAOs? makes it an attractive tool to consider. We're not here making predictions. We're just like thinking about it from first principles. I think I think there's there's a few things uh, um, to to consider, right? I think number one is that um, you know a, a DAO, what what is really a DAO? A DAO is basically a group of people that govern themselves around some predetermined rules. And they they incentivize each other to behave, uh, you know, according to those rules through a token, right? And so and so the token, of course, it depends, you know, what what type of DAO it is. But the token, you know, either gives you partial ownership of a particular, you know, protocol, or it gives you partial ownership of a portfolio, or potentially, you know, if there's no kind of direct ownership or something, maybe it gives you like. You know some some potential future ownership or of, of some some kind of something valuable right so so the whole idea is centered around um using using token models and, and and what's called tokenomics um to incentivize certain behaviors um so i think i think that's the first one right is that is that now you have a very clear very transparent very measurable way to be able to incentivize people to act in a certain manner right so i think that's the first part um, I think the second part is that generally DAOs, you know, um, not all of them are permissionless, I would say, but but a good chunk of them are, are permissionless in the sense that, you know, I can go on, on any decentralized exchange today, buy tokens of, you know, whichever, um, you know, DeFi protocol, and I'm effectively now part of the DAO because the token gives me uh, a certain voting power, right? So I can take those tokens, I can participate in governance voting, so I can I can be very active in decision making, and even if I feel like I'm not well informed enough to participate in that decision making, I can also delegate my tokens um, to people who uh, I might believe are well informed to take this forward. And there's this whole you know different types of mechanisms that uh, you know incentivize participation in governance and incentivize it again through a token. Um, you know, to to for, for people to act in their economic interests, right? Um, I think that the 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 third one is a bit around what I was talking around, changing the relationship between the individual and the organization, right? So today, 
you know, we go to one organization. I mean, most people go, go to one organization, they sign a contract, and you know, you're you're just you can only share your skills within that organization. But I think with DAOs, the, the beauty is that um you can take that skill to to multiple places, right? And you can say, well, I've been I've been doing, you know, let's say I'm I'm somebody who is a risk management expert, for example, right? And I've been providing some of that expertise at a um, decentralized exchange, right? Where I'm kind of helping give some advice on, you know, risk parameters for, you know, a particular pool of uh, a trading pool. And I can take that skill plus the learnings from there that I'm, you know, being rewarded for. And I can go take it to, you know, another decentralized exchange, or I can take it to, uh, you know, maybe a lending platform, which is, is still within DeFi, but maybe a little bit different. Uh, I can also go in and take it to maybe like an NFT lending platform where again it's it's you know similar but still different, right? And so so I think the beauty is that you know people I, I think that it really enables that shift to you know people being able to maximize the value of their skills and and at the same time, you know, have that what I guess some people call the portfolio career where like, hey, I'm not just working for this company, I'm actually providing you know, my my skills to five or 10 different organizations and being rewarded, uh, you know, for it at all of them. I'm probably actually making more money that way than if I had just, you know, been working at one traditional organization. Yeah, that brings us to, you know, the question that you alluded to in your answer earlier, value distribution and the internet, you know, web one, web two, web three. Web three sort of changes the value distribution, value capture. Um, how, how are you seeing it in in the portfolio companies um, that you've been looking at or just other industry standards? What does this mean to you? What does perhaps a DAO ecosystem tell you about it? Yeah, I think I think that uh, that Web3 definitely um, is, is, um, is quite a radical departure from what most people have gotten used to over the past 10 to 20 years, right? I think that, um, you know, when when web one came around, right, you know, you, you had all these very primitive websites and you would just go there and, and, and just read stuff, right? So, you know, news organizations or or maybe, you know, governments or, or, or even individuals were just publishing stuff on, on static websites and you would just go there and read it. And, and that was kind of the end of it. And then the, the monetization um, model was, was usually through banner ads. And then web two came around. And so you had you know, the rise of, of things like Google, Amazon, obviously Facebook and, and social media. And I think what, what, what most people are aware nowadays is that over the past 10 to 20 years, um, suddenly people and their data have become, you know, the product, right? And, and, and your data is, is being monetized, uh, right? I, I don't think that's, that's a secret at all. At the same time, there's not much you can do unless you completely go off grid. And to be honest, um, it is very convenient to have, you know, uh, uh, Google Maps, and it's very convenient to have Amazon, and it's very convenient to have social media to to stay in touch with people around the world. I think Web three changes that significantly because I think one of the, you know, the, the, there's a few tenets around it. I think one is around um, anonymity, right? And and maybe it's not necessarily privacy either, because again, you know, blockchains are completely transparent. But, you know, they're also anonymous. And so you don't necessarily have to reveal, you know, who you are, uh, you know, to the world, right? You can just be a, a long string of, uh, of, uh, of um, numbers and, and, and letters and, and people may not know who you are. 
Um, and, and, and I think a lot of the, the, some of the use cases we're seeing around Web3 social or, or, or DSOC, which is decentralized social uh, media, is, is around making sure that you know, users are protected and that users don't become uh, the product, right? I mean, the product is a product, but users' data doesn't become the product. So I think that's, that's one area where you know, I think the, the whole value distribution is going to change away from users giving it away to, to companies for free, um, but you know, users basically being able to keep it. But at the same time, I think some people are experimenting with ways for people to monetize their data, right? I mean, some people might be willing to, to give their data away for a fee. So I could say, hey, I can tell you about my browsing data or my geolocation data or whatever it is, but I want to be compensated for it, right? And I want you to, to actually pay me a fee for that. So um, I think it's still a little bit early, um, but, uh, but, but we're definitely hearing about you know, a lot of these ideas happening. Um, I think the other thing around value distribution is that um, one of the things that we're seeing, uh, and this is very true of the NFT vertical within Web3, is engagement between um, people and whether they are fans or consumers or whatnot, and you know artists or or, or content creators or or even uh, you know consumer brands, right? And so I think that you know generally in the past, whether you were a content creator or an artist or even a, one of the major consumer brands. Um, there was always some kind of like, you know, middleman in between to get to the final consumer, whether it's a consumer of the content or the fan or the consumer of whatever, um, you know, goods or services you're providing. So in the case of artists, you kind of had, you know, the record labels, you had, you know, iTunes, you have Spotify, you know, these are all kind of the middlemen in between them. And unfortunately, the relationship is typically one way, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm the artist, I create the music, I upload it to Spotify and iTunes, and then it just streams over to the user. And I'm not able to really engage with, with that fan directly on a one-on-one -on -one basis, right? Um, the same can be said about content creators, right? So if you put out stuff on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube, uh, again, you're going through all these platforms and, and you know, feeding that content, but really without having that direct relationship with, with, um, with the person. And even for the brands, it's the same thing, right? Because ultimately the brands, you know, most brands, especially when, when when we're talking about online brands, you know, they have to go through, you know, a middleman like like an Amazon or a Lazada or something like that. And again, you don't have that direct relationship. And I think with with NFTs, um, it, it actually enables a much more direct relationship with those people. And it it enables, you know, fans or consumers of content or or whoever to even potentially have, you know. A, a piece of the pie, uh, you know, that is being taken away from the middleman. And so a great example of this, I would say, are music NFTs, right? So I think if we think historically, you know, the, the whole life cycle of a, of a, let's say, a successful band was that, you know, you start playing with your with your band at, at, at a bar or, or some kind of venue, you hope to be discovered by a big record label, you know, they sign you up and, and they sign you with a contract that probably says that they're going to take, you know, a big chunk of your earnings in perpetuity and you sign up and then, you know, eventually you become big, you start streaming on all these platforms, you go to, you know, you, you have concerts and all that stuff. And, um, and that's kind of it, but it, it's also very tough because, you know, I think that the, the number of bands that exist that actually end up being successful through that journey is still very, very, very small. Now, the challenge is that before Web3, if, if I was like a, a band, right, and I was playing at a bar, 
you know, yes, you know, you might have your regulars who come in, you know, every whatever Thursday or Friday to listen and, you know, they're, they're cheering for you and all that. But other than them maybe putting a dollar into a hat or buying you a drink, there was really no way to, you know, really engage them in a deeper way as a fan and even as a potential investor. Now with NFTs, that totally changes because if, if I'm a band and I'm starting out and I see regular fans coming out to my gigs every, every Friday or whatever it is, um, I can then say, hey, I'm going to issue, you know, an NFT and, you know, I might choose to charge, right? Because I want to use it as a way to, to, to also crowdfund, you know, for going to a bigger gig or, or, or to buy new equipment or whatever that may be. Um, but in return as a fan, you know, especially if you're buying like my first set of NFTs, I'm going to give you some special privileges, right? So first of all, is that, you know, if I go to a bigger concert, bigger venue, you'll get automatic tickets, you'll get VIP tickets, all this kind of stuff. But I can also program it in a way that I can actually share with you some of my future revenue and some of my future success. So even for me as a fan, I could be, and, and I come across sometimes, you know, artists, right? I, I listen to a lot of stuff on SoundCloud where a lot of these indie artists uh, usually publish. And I come across some of them and sometimes I'm like, man, I, I wish I could like, you know, offer a bit of money just to make sure that they keep going because I like their music, but I, I don't know how to do it. And, and even if I put a bit of money now, well, it's an investment that I'll never see a return, right? Now with NFTs, I'm like, hey, I can buy your NFT. I can support you as an artist at a very early stage. And I can also, you know, join you in your future financial success, right? And, and this is how that value gets redistributed from the middlemen, like the record labels, more towards both the fans and the artists. Uh, thank you for this comprehensive answer, Stefano. Even I would like to support the creators. Uh, I don't know if you read my book, the new one, Passion Economy and the Side Hustle Revolution. Yes, uh, exactly. Focus a lot on people really trying to build their careers off of their passion. Uh, we've discussed a lot of the useful uh, bullish scenarios for Web3. But there's also a lot of skepticism going around in the ecosystem. Um, what are some things that ecosystem enablers need to get right so that this skepticism eventually goes away? And do you think there is some merit in the skepticism, if any, around Web3? I think, um, I think in terms of merit for the skepticism, look, it's natural. It's, it's, it's very natural. And um, if we go back, you know, 20 to 30 years to when the internet was first starting, I mean, a lot of the great minds of, of, of our time were very skeptical about it, right? I think that um, Paul Krugman and, 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 you know, in a way I feel sorry that everybody picks on him because he's so famous and he made this comment about the internet saying that, look, it's a passing fad. Uh, people don't have anything to say to each other and email is going to die. E email will just replace fax as a way to transmit documents, but it's never going to be more than that, right? Um, and I think it's just natural. It's natural when when there's a new technology that um, is so different to what we're used to and it it creates new, you know, new, new innovations that we don't even know exist yet, right? Um, it's natural to be skeptical. I think at the same time, um, you know, it is the industry is in very early days. And so I think a lot of times people's expectations for the industry are, you know, are, are, are five or 10 or 20 years ahead of them. Right. And, and 
you know, sometimes people say, oh, you know, I've, I've, I've seen some of these metaverses, uh, you know, decentralized metaverses, and, you know, they, they look, they look pretty horrible. The experience is not nice. Or people say like, oh, you know, the, the uh, transactions per second of uh, even the fastest blockchain is only a fraction of what, you know, Visa or MasterCard can achieve today, right? And, and those criticisms, I mean, they're certainly true. It's true. But at the same time, it's almost like somebody in, you know, the mid to late 90s trying to stream an 8K movie on a 56K dial-up network, right? Um, so, so I think it's all around, you know, aligning the expectations with what the technology is, what it's capable of doing today, and what it could potentially achieve in the future, right? Um, so, so I think that's one point. I think to your first question around, you know, what does it take to really get over um, the skeptics? And I would say not just the skeptics, but also the, the broader population, right? So I, I generally, you know, I, I think about this a lot, right? What, what does it take for us to move beyond, you know, what we call crypto natives, which are people like me who spend, you know, day in and day out breathing and, 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 and living crypto, uh, you know, 24-7, and, and how do we really get to onboard the first billion non-crypto native users and beyond? And I think there's three things that need to happen that, that I think people in crypto agree haven't fully happened yet. I think the first one is um, UI UX. Um, UI UX design in, in crypto is just horrible. I, I don't know if it's partly because most of it has been designed by, by developers and engineers, not designers. And so generally the, the user experience in crypto is 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 not good, and and it's actually scary because a lot of it is around um, value and around money, right? A lot of it is around you know moving moving money around and using your money on this um, on this new technology, and if the way that you're doing it and and if the user journey is not clear and smooth and easy, it becomes very scary and it puts people off. So I think UI UX is something that needs to be solved. And if anything, I think there's a massive demand for um, you know user experience design in the crypto space. I think the second one is infrastructure. Um, the reality is that the infrastructure today is still you know, not fast enough, not scalable enough, right? Um, so, so we're still, you know, like, like a lot of critics say like, oh, well, you know, a lot of the established players can, can do much better, much faster, cheaper. That's absolutely true. So we, we still need much better infrastructure to be in place uh, to onboard the next billion users. Um, and I think the third one is what I like to think of as Web3 business, Web3 native business models. And the analogy I like to give to that is that, you know, if you look at, you know, what were some of those business models that the internet enabled that didn't exist before? Number one is Google, everything around Google, right? So search, uh, Gmail, Maps, you know, all the different services they offer were not... I mean, they're internet native, right? They did not exist before the internet. Amazon, Amazon, both as a uh, e-commerce site, but then also AWS, right? These two businesses are are internet native businesses, right? Um, and then social media is another one. Social media just just did not exist and could not exist without the internet. And so I think we're also waiting to 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 see the same thing happen in the Web three space. I think we are starting to see with some of, you know, the, the DeFi use cases, with some of the NFT use cases. But, um, you know, we, we do need to see uh, increasing number of Web3 native business models that are, you know, scalable 
and that survive, you know, over time and, and over, you know, bull markets and, and bear markets. Um, I think if we can nail those three in the next few years, then we can onboard the next 1 billion users. So how do we filter signal from noise? How does one sort of learn to become a better investor in the Web3 ecosystem? Yeah, I think, I think that's quite interesting. I, I would say that there's two, um, there's two ways to do it. Um, and they're quite unconventional because I think that historically, you know, if, um, if anybody felt like, okay, I want to, you know, be an investor in, in a new vertical or so on. And then, so you go do a lot of research or you go to conferences or, so, or things like that. I think crypto is quite unique. I think, I think the first one is you have to be on Twitter. Everything in crypto happens on Twitter first. Everything gets announced on Twitter first. Uh, all the alpha, all the all the all the nuggets of information that can uh, give you an edge over the others, it all happens on Twitter. I never used Twitter before crypto. I, I felt I had no interest in the platform, and I reluctantly got on it. And now I spend, I would say, half of my day scrolling through Twitter, uh, just learning, uh, you know, about about the space. Um, I think the second one is you need to you need to use Web three products. Um, it's the other way to learn. I think that while while I, as I mentioned, you know, the UI UX is not great, um, but at the same time, the best way to really learn about you know the the the, the benefits of of Web three technologies is to actually use them, right? So you know, um, set up a a wallet, right? Something like like a MetaMask or so. Uh, put in a bit of money, start to use some of the these DeFi protocols, uh, you know, buy an NFT, um, you know, and, and don't do it thinking that you are going to, you know, uh, get rich overnight because most likely you're not, but just use it as an investment in your own knowledge, right? And that's exactly what I did. I, I you know, I put in a few hundred bucks in my MetaMask and then I started just to like, you know, use uh, decentralized exchanges to buy some tokens. I started to lend some of those tokens and I had no... Um, you know, I, I never thought I'd make any money off of it, but it was just more for me to understand, you know, what were these products about? How do they work? Um, and, and um, you know, who else is using it? And and honestly, I find that, you know, learning by doing is, is the best way. Awesome. Stefano, thank you so much for your time. It really was a pleasure learning from you and we look forward to having you back again. My absolute pleasure. Thanks again for inviting me and uh, looking forward to the next conversation.